There we go. Well, it's good to be back with you. I'm going to ask you, if you would, uh, open your Bible, your mobile device, whatever, to Joshua chapter 9. We're going to be reading from Joshua 9, and we're going to be talking about moldy bread and worn-out sandals. I decided I would not be a living illustration of either of those two. Uh, I have been told after hunting I smell like moldy bread or worse, and uh, I do have some worn-out sandals, but I chose not to bring either of those uh, because I think there's more important things to illustrate today's message with. I hope you'll have your Bibles open. We're going to be reading from them. Since I was uh, with you last, I was supposed to go to Peru. That did not happen. Uh, The night before we were supposed to leave, my wife... I had some severe pain, and we went to the doctor, did blood work. Uh, There was a couple of enzymes that were out of whack. Those turned out to not be related to anything, uh, but uh, revealed a a polyp on the gallbladder and a pretty good-sized kidney stone. And so you can imagine uh, my wife has not had a pleasant couple of weeks since I was last here, and she was here with me. Uh, And so I... I ask for your prayers that we can get that stuff solved. And behind us, it crushed us to not get to go and see our little kids and our teenagers that we've worked with the last several years in Peru, but God had other plans. And we all have to face moments of other plans. So we're not alone in that. This morning, I want you to know I'm excited. You're going to be seeing me a little bit more frequently as we move forward Uh, As we get into the school year and things will get a little more regular and routine, uh, I'm excited to work with Tony as he comes in and begins his ministry here. And uh, I have a really good friend, Steve Puckett, in Florida who speaks so highly of him. So I'm excited to work with that and enjoy uh, worshiping with you as he leads us deeper into the heart and the passion that we have for our Father in heaven. Let's ask for the Father's blessing as we enter into this time of the Word. Father, we come to you, and we're in a million different places. Uh, Lots of stuff distracts us at summer. There's lots of things going on, travel, folks are coming and going. A lot of our folks are gone. And then there's the uncertainty with a preacher that used to be here that's not here, and who in the world is this guy from outside of here, and where are we going? And Father, we want to pause and we want to place those concerns in your presence and speak them to you and then release them to you and acknowledge that you are the God who makes the clouds your chariots and your winds the place of your whispered voice. And we pledge to wait on you and depend upon you and look to you and honor you and praise you and trust you. For you were God long before our parents even prayed for us. And you will be gone, you will be God long after. All that we hold dear is gone. But we know because you are you, the Lord God Almighty, 
that we are not abandoned or forgotten or left alone. And so we don't want to live our lives as if we were alone and left on our own. But we want to wait on you and let you lift us up on wings like eagles and give us strength to run and not grow weary and the courage to keep walking and not faint. We're thankful you are our God. In Jesus' name we praise you. Amen. Joshua 9, and the best way I know to do this is not tell you this story, but we're going to read it out of Scripture. That's why I wanted you to have your Bible handy. And we'll read it, and I'll make a comment or two, and then we'll come at the end of our time and kind of say, okay, what in the world does this mean for us today? Joshua 9, verse 1. Now, when the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, you remember Jericho's fallen, the Israelites goober up and sin because of Achan, and Ai doesn't fall to them the first time, and then Ai does fall to them, and they dedicate everything in Ai to God, and then they celebrate the covenant, and they read aloud the word of God. All that stuff's happened. Now, when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings of the hill country and the western foothills all along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea, as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. All these groups came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. It is important. I think we're more aware of it than, than any time in my life as American Christians. But especially as I'm in connection with Christians that are in largely Muslim countries, many in China, that we as God's people never take a breath without having an active enemy seeking to destroy the work of our God and the work in the lives of His people. Ephesians 6 10, uh, 10 through 12, Paul talks to the Ephesians and he says, Our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but it's against principalities and powers. Those are demonic spirits. Principalities and powers in the present host of wickedness in heavenly or spiritual places. And so he tells us to take up the armor of God. Well, the Israelites faced an active opponent. And what made this so real is that opponent comes in two forms. One is the military might of the opponent. The other is the pagan might behind the opponent that came with idolatry and the demonic forces that surrounded that idolatry. And so God had told the children of Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 7, verse 2, drive out all the peoples of the land, destroy every vestige, of their false worship, purge the land of this sin. So that's the backdrop of this story. Now, some of our enemies are going to attack us directly. They're going to do a frontal assault. They'll change the laws. They'll change the rules. They'll maybe change the court system. They'll rig the system to be against God's people. They may even come against us with armies. 
I recently spent time with a young man that lives right in the middle of Pakistan. He knows what it's like to face direct opposition and threat and have to bury people because folks are directly opposed to the ways of God. But others, other of our enemies are going to be more subtle. They're going to use deception. They're going to use what is false and entice us into things that appear easier for us to do, an easier way around the problem. And so when we pick up the story in verse 3, we learn about a group that was different than this group that was organizing a coalition to fight the Israelites physically. Verse 3, however, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, the Gibeonites resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins cracked and mended. They put, put worn and patched sandals on their feet, and they wore old, worn-out clothing. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Hmm. Interesting. What are these folks doing? What's their plan? What are they about? Well, the Gibeonites were smart. Even though they were the most skilled warriors, this coalition of three city-states, the most skilled warriors, the most feared army in all of Canaan, they realized that God, Yahweh, the Lord Almighty, the Eternal that was Israel's God was too strong for them to oppose. And so rather than be slaughtered in battle, they came up with a plan. They were going to work around the system and deceive the Israelites. Sometimes Satan comes at us as a roaring lion, the alliance that Israel faced of warring armies. Sometimes, however, he comes to us in different forms. I remember as a little boy, one Halloween, I told my mom emphatically, I think I was about seven, I'm going to be the devil this Halloween. Now, she had lots of responses she could have made to that statement. Like, what's going to be different about Halloween? Because I was, I, I grew up and I thought I was this wonderful kid. And my wife, who was a school teacher, said, Phil, wonderful kids don't go to the principal's office three times in elementary school. Okay, point well taken. But my mom said, you're not going to be the devil because the devil doesn't look like that. In fact, anytime the devil approaches you, he's going to look like something that's good. He's going to look like something you want, or he's going to show up as a shortcut to a good thing that makes you not have to pay the price for it. Well... She's right, and the Israelites are about to learn that. We know that in our hearts. We 
sing about it in our music. A recent song by Carrie Underwood had this line in it. He's a good time cowboy Casanova leaning up against the record machine. Some of y'all know these words. I'm not sure we want to sing them in church, but we'll at least quote them, right? Looks like a cool drink of water, but he's candy-coated misery. He's the devil in disguise, a snake with blue eyes, and he only comes out at night. Gives you feelings that you don't want to fight. You better run for your life. Now, I'm old enough to remember back in the early 80s, a one-time wonder hit by Terry Gibbs that goes, Somebody's knocking. Should I let him in? Looks like the devil. Would you look at him? I've heard about him, but I never dreamed he'd have blue eyes and blue jeans. Same basic song, three decades apart. But they make the point. Jesus in John 8 says, The devil has been a liar and a murderer from the beginning. And he's going to use deception. In fact, devil means deceiver, a liar, somebody that switches the price tags. And when the elder, the Israelites saw the Gibeonites, they weren't seeing the Gibeonites. They were seeing Satan's deception. The story continues in verse 6. Then these Gibeonites went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, and they said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. The Israelites said to the Hivites, But perhaps you live near us, so how could we make a treaty with you? Oh, we are your servants, they said to Joshua. But Joshua asked, where do you come from? Who are you? And they answered, your servants have come from a very distant country because of the fame of the Lord, or Yahweh, your God. For we have heard reports of him, all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, Sihon, king of Hezbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. And our elders and all those living in our country said, Take provisions for your journey. Go and meet them and say to them, We are your servants. Make a treaty with us. This bread of ours was warm when we packed it at our home on the day that we left to come to you. But see now how dry and moldy it is? And these wineskins, they were filled and were new. But see how cracked they are and how worn out? And our clothes and our sandals are worn out from the very long journey. The Gibeonites pour it on, don't they? Here comes their candy-coated misery, and they're masquerading as an angel of light that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14. And notice how they appealed to the Israelites. It makes good sense. We're... We're helpless. We're helpless. You don't need to go to war with us. No need to risk any of your lives. We're here. And in addition, they, they use flattering language. 
we need you to help us. We're weary and worn out and we don't have anything worthwhile. And then they dress it up in religious language. This is one of Satan's biggest tools. They dress it up in religious language. We know your God is great. We heard of what he did, both before you crossed the Jordan River and after. We know about Jericho and Ai, but we also know about the stuff before you crossed the Jordan. In fact, we even know about God delivering you from Egypt. And most of all, and this is a line, if you read the whole chapter, you'll hear it again and again. We are your servants. We're not really salesmen. We're here to help you. Would you like to speak to our loan officer? You know the pitch. You know how it works. The candy-coated misery, the tempter. Now look at verses 14 and 15. The Israelites sampled their provisions. I would not want to be the one that sampled the moldy bread. How about you? I would not be the one that wanted to examine the worn-out sandals or the stinky clothes. Then Joshua, after having all this, they sampled their provision, but did not inquire of the Lord. Then Joshua made a treaty of peace with them to let them live, and the leaders of the assembly ratified it by oath. Now the problem is not the Gibeonites using deception. They feared for their lives. They recognized the power of God. They didn't want to take them on in direct battle. Satan's always going to do that. He's going to find the easiest way into our hearts and to grab control of who we are. He's going to use the least caliber bullet necessary to bring down his foe and to save his power for when it's most needed. That's always his plan. The problem wasn't the Gibeonites. The problem was the Israelites. The problem were the leaders. Just one little phrase is the turning point of the whole story. But they did not inquire of the Lord. When you open up the books of First and Second Samuel, one of the things that is so powerful about David is not just his faith, but his willingness to wait on the Lord and inquire of him what he should do. He wouldn't go into battle until he knew certainty from the Lord that the Lord wanted him to do it. And the few times that he didn't inquire of the Lord, that he took a census of his army and he said, we got this many and they got that many, and we got a lot more minis than they got more minis, David failed. He knew the story of the Gibeonites. He knew the story of Joshua. He knew the story of the Early Sanhedrin, the group of elders, made the decision. Yeah, these guys are harmless. We don't need to pray about it. We don't need to wait about it. We need to get this behind us. We need to get on down the road. We got things to do. We got to make this decision and get it behind us. Because we got cities to conquer and land to occupy. 
And so they didn't inquire of the Lord. It was their downfall. Let's look at verses 16 through 20. Three days after they had made the treaty with the Gibeonites. Three days. You got that? Why do you think the Holy Spirit put three days in there? Three days. It's not very long, is it? If they'd just waited three days, different outcome. If they just said, let's, let's take a week and pray about this and fast about it. Let's take a month or two and, and let's see who these people really are. Let's let them live among us a while and we'll see for sure who these people are and ask the Lord to show us. If they just waited a few days, the Israelites, three days later, after they made the treaty with the Gibeonites, they heard that the Gibeonites were actually their neighbors living near them. Verse 17, So the Israelites set out, and on the third day they came to their cities, Gibeon, Kephira, Beroth, and Kiriath-Jerim. But the Israelites did not attack them, because the leaders of the assembly had sworn on an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. But the whole assembly grumbled against their leaders. Anytime God's people run ahead of inquiring of the Lord, there's inevitably going to be conflict in the camp. Conflict is often the result of not seeking the Lord together. What happens here is the opposite of what happens in Acts 15, where the Israelite, where the uh, early Christians gather together as a group led by their elders and the apostles to make a decision. God's people are a family, the body of Christ, a community held together by the blood and the grace. Of Jesus. And he wants us to remain unified. In John 17, where Jesus prays that we can be one, he doesn't want us to be one so we can sit around the campfire and sing Kumbaya, hold hands and have a warm fuzzy, right before we have the marshmallows come out with the chocolate and we make us some mores. That's not why he wants us to be one. Why does he want us to be one? So the world can know that Christ has come from the Father to bring life to all people. The goal of unity is not unity. The goal of unity is not to get along. The goal of unity is so that we as a unified people can go with one voice to a world that hears so many false voices. Conflict in the camp often comes from not seeking the Lord together. Or, in this case, the whole camp is off the decision together. You notice that the people that are complaining were also part of the people that made the decision. 
Same language, same title. The problem is they didn't seek the Lord. Well, how do you deal with this situation? You got a bunch of people in conflict. You got the people you're supposed to drive out of the land and destroy all vestiges of their idol worship and their paganism. What are you going to do? Verses 20 and 21, end of the story. This is what we'll do with them, the Gibeonites. We will let them live so that God's wrath will not fall on us from breaking the oath we swore to them. They continued, let them live, but let them be woodcutters and water carriers in the service of the whole assembly. So the leader's promise to the Gibeonites was kept. The Israelites had to keep their word. They had made a solemn, sacred oath in the name of the Lord their God. Just like your mama and my mama, or your grandmama and my grandmama, they had learned the principle that two wrongs don't make a right. We may have not inquired of the Lord, but if we took an oath in His name, we've got to be true to that oath. And so we can't break this oath to try to make this right and go kill them. Two wrongs don't make a right. We'll leave it to God to handle what happens to the Gibeonites. And so they act honorably. And they do what's right in the sight of God. And the Gibeonites who said, we are your servants, became servants. They're punished. Now that's a great story, and it's from long ago, and it doesn't exactly fit who we are, does it? Until we start getting real honest about who we are. So the question is, what, what are we to take away from this story of the Gibeonites and the deception? What can we hang on to? I mean, there's some scattered insights. Well, I'm going to ask you to take away four things. And I know we're pressed for time, so I'm going to ask you to open the inside cover of your bulletin, and you're going to see four places, four things. And here are four takeaways we want to take away from this, and we want to see the relevancy of this story for our situation right now at Pine Tree. Now, I know some of you are already wondering, why in the world do we not have a preacher yet? And not only do you not have a preacher yet, we haven't even started the search yet. And it doesn't matter that a couple of times already we've emphasized that the vast majority of churches that try to hire a preacher really quickly after having a long-term preacher end up slaughtering that preacher and damaging their church. You just don't get over that easily. You've got to have a little time of grieving. You've got to have a little time to get over things. You've got to have a little time to learn some things. But the biggest reason that we want to take time in the interim is that we've got to remember that it's God that's God of this church and not a preacher. That while a preacher is a powerful equipper and influencer in the life of the church, it's Jesus who is the head of the church. And in the interim, without that preacher, it gives us an opportunity to learn some things, to depend upon God again, to look at some of the ways we do things 
that are damaging to the body and correct them because we recognize they're ungodly. It allows us to be challenged to step up and do ministry and not be consumers simply looking for the church that scratches our every itch. Others, if we're honest, are still kind of sitting back trying to figure out who to blame for Richie leaving. Well, I have two general sayings that I think are absolute truth. If a goal of a church is to be in the middle of the road, they need to know what lies in the middle of the road. The only thing you're going to find in the middle of the road is roadkill. This church has a mission a lot bigger than being in the middle of the road in churches of Christ. And the first mission is to be Christ church, to do Christ work. And the second is, anybody spends all their time looking in the rearview mirror trying to go forward is going to have a major head-on collision with reality. Isn't that right? So from this story, I want us to hear four principles. And I'm not rushing this sermon. I'm not trying to talk fast so I could cram it in a little short container. There's, these are principles I believe before God we've got, to, we've got to hear. So principle number one, we will seek God. We will seek God. That's our first Seek, not a preacher, but our God. We will seek God in the leading of His Holy Spirit like the early church did when they made their decisions. Go read the book of Acts. Notice how with prayer and fasting in Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are called into mission. Notice when there's a problem with widows, they discuss it and they bring it before God. Notice in this early church, when their church was threatened by a split between Jew and Gentile, the whole church gets together and they pray about it. And then the leaders come to a consensus and they present it to the church and they say, it seems good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And they move forward together, even though it's a little uncomfortable. We will seek God in the leading of His Holy Spirit. There's a process. It's going to take some time. But in the middle of that process are some spiritual principles that are crucial. Number one, a Bible reading plan. I don't know how many of you are in Matthew 20 today in your Bible reading. But that's about where you're supposed to be, about Matthew 20. If you're not with the rest of the team on reading through the Gospel of Matthew, and we'll give you an update on the reading plan next Sunday, Lord willing, then join the team. We want to be shaped by Jesus and His passion and His love. And so we're going to spend some time in the Gospels together. We're going to learn to share Scripture from the heart. You kind of got a glimpse of that before. But we're going to ask everybody in the church family here to be able to quote either some teaching of Jesus or a story of Jesus as if it was their own. Now, it's going to take us about nine months to get there. And we're not going to make anybody get up in front of a whole big group to do it. But we want the Word of God to be in our hearts so the Holy Spirit can take it and change our character. 
We're going to spend time in prayer with specific prayer targets. Next Sunday, I will uh, have a list of the things that you said are things you love about this church that you texted me. You thought I just forgot about all those. No, I didn't forget about all those. I want to remind you of all those. And then we're going to take some time and look at those in specific clusters, and we're going to take a week to pray about those things. And we're going to pray about our search and about the person God has out there. We're all going to be challenged to fast. I think I've already shared with you, Tuesdays is my fasting day. I don't say that to brag. That's not the, but to, to let you know I practice what I'm asking you to join me in. I fast from food. The reason ought to be fairly obvious. I can use a little less food and a whole lot less Dr. Pepper. One of these days, I'll add Dr. Pepper to the fast. <laughs> but some of you may need to fast from Facebook or email or the telephone, whatever it is. And then we'll talk some about communal discernment as we go along. So principle number one, we're going to seek God in the leading of the hope. Principle number two, we will remain committed to one another. We're going to have a whole little series on why groups are important and how groups were so much the heart of the early church and how it allows us to one another each other. You have all these commandments to one another each other. Love one another. Bear with one another. We want to be unified. So anything that destroys unity, especially when it's based on sinful approaches to communication... We're just going to address. We're not going to pretend like it's not there. But to address it, we also want to allow some for, for some positive, open opportunities to communicate. So in the next few weeks, you're going to hear about focus groups. And I'm going to sit down, spend hours and hours and hours with different groups in this church, just hearing from you about your hopes and dreams for Pine Tree and uh, about the kingdom of God and also some concerns. We're going to challenge the leadership to be as transparent as possible. You've already heard some things percolating about mission and vision, and a lot of that work was done before we came on board, but was uh, rolled out in a beginning way at the end of the school year, and it's going to take back up again as we begin the new school year. We want you to be on board with that. The search team when we form it, and one will be forming fairly soon, will be as transparent as possible except for confidentiality about those that we're talking to. And we're going to challenge you to not try to figure out who those people are. Because the people we're going to be looking at are people that have families and ministries, and we don't want those disrupted. We want to give them an opportunity to seek the Lord and see if that's in the same direction as Pine Tree. We're going to demand that people be biblical in how they handle communication. Because I am aware and I've had a friend that's worked with this church in the past as a consultant I'm aware that, like in most churches, there's some snipers. 
that thinks sending anonymous notes or messages or email is acceptable. And that's just not going to be tolerated. It's cowardly. And it's mean-spirited. And it's against the teaching of Jesus. A person, a leader, a friend can't address the wrongs that you may think they've committed if you don't talk to them and sit down and work through them. Matthew 5 and Matthew 18 are very clear. And so the elders have committed to me that the first thing they're going to do when they receive any note is go to the end of it and see if it's signed. And if it's not signed, it's going to be discarded without being read. We know what snipers do. We saw it in Dallas. The only difference is when you gut shoot somebody in the church as a sniper, they have to live the death because they can't amend the wrongs. So we're going to handle things as biblically as possible and transparent as possible. Number three, we're not going to rush to make things fit our timing. I mean, some of you guys know I'm going to have one foot in Abilene once a month. And then I'm going to be coming over here. And that's kind of crazy. And I'm going to be here most of the time. And I'd like to get Abilene wound up. But I don't want to wind it up until God's wound it up. Until the Lord's finished that process. And we're not going to rush the process here. We're going to wait on the Lord. We're going to trust Isaiah 40. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They'll mount up on wings like eagles. They're going to run and not grow weary. They're going to walk and not faint. We may have to walk and not faint before we fly on wings like eagles. But we're going to wait on the Lord. Number four, when we goober up, or sin, you know the difference between goobering up and sinning? I do both, okay? I say stupid stuff, I do stuff that probably wasn't the wisest thing in the world, and that's a goober up. It's not a sin, but it may irritate you. Well, if I goober up, I want you to tell me, I, I, you know, and we'll talk about it, and I'm, I'll apologize if it's an apology-needed situation. We're going to ask you to do the same thing. And when we sin, we're going to admit it. We're not going to hide it. We're not going to cover it up. We're not going to pretend. The, the thing Satan would like for us to do is to not call sin, sin. He'd just like for us to just kind of pretend it's not there. But then that becomes an abscess in the life of the body. So I want to ask you, because I know this church has got good stuff going on. We're going to remind ourselves of that next week. And you got a great future, and you live in a great place. My wife loves seeing trees. Can you imagine being in exile in Abilene for 10 years and finally getting to see trees? You live in a great place. And so we want this to be a great church. Most of all, whatever happens, and this is number five, but there's not a number five on your list, but us Church of Christ folks like a handful of stuff, so it's number five. Number five, 
and I didn't even bother to do the bills, so I'll tell you number five. Whenever we get in a situation and we don't know what to do, we're going to pray and ask the Lord, what's the next right thing to do to redeem this in the name of Jesus? What's the next right thing to do? Now, I know I've gone over time. I've messed up Bible class. I don't know how to undo that, but these four principles had to be heard. I feel that with all my heart. I'm looking forward to walking with you and seeing what the Lord's going to do with us together. Because just like the song we sang said, our God, He reigns and is alive. And it's in Him we live and we survive. If you need to come to the Lord for any reason, I ask that you do that as we stand. Would you live for Jesus?